It's a Friday night, you've had a long week of school and work and just life in general. You decide to go out with your crew, have a good time, get some drinks, maybe have a smoke. And while you're doing this, you're sitting there and asking yourself, what exactly is happening at the physiological level while I'm smoking marijuana? What is marijuana actually doing to my brain? Well, you know what? Let's talk about that on today's episode of The Science Behind That. Welcome to The Science Behind That with Atticus Hamilton. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Science Behind That. I hope you guys are doing good. I know I'm doing great. Um, Before we get started, I want to say the reason why we didn't have any episodes last week was because I actually took the MCAT last week, and so... You know, I got in a bit of last-minute studying before I, I, I took that exam, and I took that exam, and then I just needed to, to kind of take a break from everything on Monday. Um, but we're back, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we're back continuing this uh, five-part drug series. So this is part two, and today, as you heard from the intro, we're going to be talking about marijuana before we get started, I'd like to inter- in- invite you guys to go grab your favorite drug of choice, which is a cup of coffee, add a little bit of maple syrup to it, and we'll get right into it. So, starting off, I think everybody has at least, at the very least, heard of of marijuana. You know, if if you haven't done or used marijuana, I think everybody at the very least has heard of marijuana, and. Um, I live in the United States, and uh, a while ago, you know, before many, many states legalized it both medically and recreationally, there was a big debate about marijuana and uh, what it does to the brain. And I remember this vividly because I was in, I think this was my freshman year in high school when this debate really started. And uh, everyone was saying, you know, you had one group of people who were saying it was addictive, and you had another group of people saying it wasn't addictive. And I think that that, while the debate has kind of simmered down today, it it still is there. Um, and before we get started, I'd like to clear up one big thing, which is, is marijuana addictive? The answer is yes, but it's not addictive as other drugs such as caffeine, uh, nicotine, alcohol. It's not as addictive as those drugs, but it is addictive because you can form dependencies. And uh, in my experience and in my training, a dependency is essentially an addiction. You know, if you're dependent on a substance, you're addicted to that substance. I'm dependent on caffeine to wake up in the morning, right? So I'm addicted to caffeine. Um, same, Same sort of deal. So uh, before all of you guys, before any of you out there start sending me angry emails about how it's not addictive, realize that it does cause dependencies if it's used enough, and dependencies are definitionally addictions. So, we cleared that up. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to talk about what um, marijuana is doing in the brain, but more specifically what Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol is doing in the brain, which is the IUPAC name for THC. THC 
or um, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, <laughs> um, that's a mouthful, uh, is a cannabinoid that is produced by cannabis, the marijuana plant, um, and they bind to receptors that are all throughout the brain called um, endocannabinol receptors um, or endocannabinol receptors. And uh, those endocannabinol receptors, they play a big role in dopamine secretion throughout the brain. So essentially, all marijuana does, or excuse me, not marijuana, all THC does is it binds to these endocannabinol receptors, and it basically modulates the amount of dopamine and serotonin that are produced by your neurons, and it also controls the release of GABA. And um, for those of you who are unaware, GABA is the primary inhibitory uh, neuronal signal in the brain. So let me give you a um, an example here, right? Let's say you have really bad nausea, okay? And you take an anti-nausea medication. What's going on there is an anti-nausea medication is inducing the release of GABA. Now, this is a very abbreviated um, you know, explanation. So for any of you out there who study pharmacokinetics, don't get angry at me, okay? This is just a rough explanation to illustrate what GABA does. Um, but GABA, so you take an anti-nausea medication, and essentially that will increase the expression of GABA within the brainstem, um, and uh, that is going to reduce your overall feelings of nausea because what happens is in our in the human body we basically have two brains we have the brain in our head and. Uh, we have the brain in our stomach. I know what some of you guys were going to think I was going to say, uh, but no, <laughs> we have a brain in our stomach. Our, our, our stomach actually has a massive network of um, neuronal tissue, uh, which personally I think is very, very interesting. Um, and in the same way that our gut bacteria are able to secrete endocrine hormones to modulate our personality based off of that nervous system in our stomach. Um, signals from our stomach go through that nervous system and up into the spinal cord and into the brain stem. So essentially, a lot of anti-nausea medication, they essentially just increase GABA and inhibit um, structures in the brainstem, particularly the reticular formation, from facilitating the passage of that nausea signal from the stomach to the, the higher level regions of the brain. And so this, ladies and gentlemen, leads us into what brain structures does THC actually impact? Well, pretty much everything, okay? THC impacts the amygdala, basal ganglia, brainstem, cerebellum, hippocampus, hypothalamus, neocortex, nucleus accumbens, and the spinal cord. <laughs> so, I mean, out of all of the drugs we've discussed so far, which so far has been one, woohoo! Um, you know, this definitely impacts the most regions of the brain. And, uh, and honestly, I think out of all the drugs we will discuss this impacts the most regions of the brain. But um, 
So what do all these structures do normally then? The amygdala is primarily responsible for fight or flight, right? And so the amygdala uh, regulates fear and uh, anger especially, but fear, anxiety, and other emotions, primarily fight or flight, right? So anger and fear is primarily what the amygdala regulates. Basal ganglia is going to be controlling your movement. Um, In a rough sense, kind of plans a movement, but not really. The basal ganglia more directs movement signals from the motor cortex in the brain outwards down to the muscles. Um, But for certain things, it does control uh, motor coordination. Brainstem, the brainstem is the most rudimentary part of the brain and it is part of the limbic system and um so because of that structures within the brainstem are going to be controlling your um not just your vital functions but they're also going to be just coordinating information between the higher brain and the rest of your body so the the lower regions i.e central nervous system and peripheral nervous system that information is going to be coordinated by the brainstem and the spinal cord. Cerebellum is, again, another motor region of the brain, but it's um, primarily responsible for learned behaviors. So if you guys listened to not the last episode, but the episode before that, where we talked about why is it easier to remember how to do sports than it is to remember facts, We mentioned how the cerebellum stores motor information, but learned motor behavior, learned motor skills, like how to kick a soccer ball, you know, uh, how to shoot a bow, uh, how to swim, that sort of thing. That's all stored in the cerebellum. And along with that, the cerebellum has a minor responsibility in balance. Not a major responsibility because primarily balance is going to be regulated by the inner ear, right? And the cochlea in the inner ears. But for the most part, it's going to regulate uh, balance or it's going to, it's going to have some um, involvement in balance. Hippocampus is memory, so learning new information. Hypothalamus is your vital behaviors, so your primary urges, eating, uh, sleeping, sexual behavior, etc., Neocortex is going to be the top part of your brain, and that's going to be complex thinking, feeling, and movement, i.e. higher level thought. Nucleus accumbens is going to be in the center of the brain, and it's going to be one of the major um, uh, components of the addiction pathway um, and uh, motivation and reward. And and the the nucleus accumbens kind of works in conjunction with another structure in the brain called the superior and inferior nuclei, and those are going to be majorly responsible for the formation of addiction, which does, as I said, does happen with THC, just in lower lower degrees of severity uh, than we see with other drugs, and of course spinal cord, which we've already talked about. So. THC affects all these things, and these are the standard, um, you know, standard things that these regions of the brain do. So, when somebody is using THC, what does that do? 
may cause panic or paranoia, slowed reaction time, anti-nausea, impaired coordination, impaired memory, increased appetite, altered thinking, judgment, and sensation, euphoria, and altered pain sensitivity. So, I feel like when people just read off, when medical professionals especially <clears throat> read off this list of things that THC does, there's more emphasis on the bad than there is good. Um, I personally have never used THC and I don't think I ever will, but there are beneficial applications to THC. So when somebody is smoking um, a joint and um, what, what's happening is the smoke from that plant is going into their lungs and the THC in that smoke is going to be almost immediately um, dissolved out of that smoke and into the bloodstream because of our good friends, the simple cuboidal epithelium of the alveoli, the simple alveolar epithelium in the lungs, but that's for another day. So the THC is dissolved out of the smoke into the blood where it goes to the brain and it affects a person anywhere from about three seconds to a minute. Um, effects will start being felt. Um, and so what are, what, what are the applicative uses of this? I'm, I'm not one to be able to explain to you guys what the recreational applications of this are just because I've never experienced it. But from a medical perspective, THC has been able to reduce seizures. Um, and that is what medical marijuana does is it it's for epilepsy and it's for depression, chronic depressive disorders, because what happens is that slowed reaction time and altered thinking when someone is having a seizure, what's happening is a bunch of neurons in different regions of the brain are firing randomly all of a sudden. And what THC will do is it will basically prevent that firing of um of those neurons because as we said in the beginning of this while thc um of of uh increases dopamine it can also modulate gaba expression and that's exactly what we see happening with individuals who have certain types of epilepsy for example one of the you know the the big index cases um that's drawn to in literature all the time is of a little girl who, who had a type of epilepsy that manifested as micro seizures, which would cause her to basically suddenly fall asleep. And it was different than narcolepsy because it was an actual type of epilepsy. She would fall asleep, not know anything about what's happening, and then a minute later, wake up. And she would have about 300 of these micro seizures a day. Um, and after being on a prescribed regimen of medical marijuana, i.e. medical grade THC, those seizures, those epileptic episodes dropped off from 300 a day to two a day and eventually to zero a day because of the modulate, uh, because of the, uh, the regulatory effect of THC on GABA and on dopamine. Um, and I remember that vividly because that case study was actually used to legalize um at least medical marijuana in, in, in many of the states in the United States. And so, you know, additionally, um, 
because of this, THC is also used in um, patients receiving chemotherapy. Why is it used in patients receiving chemotherapy? Because it has anti-nausea effects. So for any of you who don't know, after chemotherapy, patients tend to be really, really nauseous and unable to keep any food down. And so they're prescribed um, uh, medical marijuana in a lot of instances because it it's such a good anti-nausea medication. Um, and, and it allows them to be able to eat and not only to be able to eat, but it increases their op- appetite. And for somebody who is undergoing chemotherapy, it is very, very, very helpful in increasing quality of life, right? And then generally to, um, you know, THC does have applicative per, uh, properties in, you know, helping with chronic depression and anxiety, Conversely, however, it can induce panic and paranoia in individuals. Ironically, it can induce that in people who have certain types of epilepsy. Uh, So certain types of epilepsy helps with other types it doesn't help with. And especially in individuals who have chronic anxiety, it can, unfortunately, it can majorly uh, exacerbate anxiety symptoms. And I think... Now we we have a good understanding, I think, of um, of uh, you know what it does, um, just from what it does to each region of the brain in, in a broad perspective. Let's ba- briefly talk about um, how it can be addictive, and the answer to this is if an individual uses THC enough, it can cause dependent behaviors. Uh, or it can it can induce a dependency on the drug because all of the sudden when a person uses THC enough, when that THC wears off and they go back down to physiological zero, they feel more depressed maybe, they feel um, less awake maybe, and so they want to take that uh, that hit again of T. I know it's not called a hit, but they want to take that hit again of THC to get back up to their new physiological zero. And that is how um, addictions can arise. As I said, this requires a lot of use of, of, of marijuana. I mean, like this would require at least using it two times a day before you start to see this dependency arise. So compared to other drugs like caffeine, nicotine, um, alcohol, um, Compared to other drugs like that, it's it's not really that addictive, but definitionally it can cause addictions, um, and you know that is going to be exacerbated too with just the simple fact of how our brains respond to psychopharmaceuticals through the opponent process theory of drug response. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, that should do it uh, for today's episode of marijuana or on marijuana. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions or comments, please, uh, you know, shoot me an email and let me know. And, uh, you know, I, I've always, at the end of every episode, I've always said stand up and question everything. And um, that is especially important with drugs because you will hear things you know, from people about, oh, this drug is so bad, or, oh, this drug is so good. 
And anytime somebody says X is always Y or this is always like this, you should always question it because very few things in life are always something, right? Very few things are always something. You know, people always say that cocaine is horrible, but something that people don't realize is cocaine, as an example, has medical applications. Cocaine is still used in um, medicated eye drops in countries such as Australia to numb the eye for eye surgery because it is such a good contact analgesic. Um, so, uh, and contact anesthetic. So, ladies and gentlemen, remember, as always, stand up and question everything because everything needs to be questioned. Um, and I will see you guys in the next episode on Monday where we will talk about alcohol. I will see you then, everybody. Have a lovely weekend, and I will see you all on Monday.